So while more folks are coming in, I want to hear from you about that pre-class activity, right? So those who are still coming in, we've been comparing the first set of six windows with the second set of six windows. So what was it that we noticed? What did we see in the windows? Can I use this one, Brian? Were they exactly the same? No. No, and that's okay. And Jerry, I was so grateful that he made mention he's worked with glass manufacturers before, and he said it is, it is extremely difficult to get two windows to match almost exactly the same, right? So the fact that the first six almost look identical in the outward material is amazing. But then nine and 10, three and four, right? There's some differences. So what were them? Just shout them out or raise your hand, whatever you want. Okay, people had a rosier hue. Oh, interesting. In the first set than the second, okay. The greens. Okay. Yeah. In number four, the reds were more transparent. The reds were the, more transparent. Oh, oh, yeah. More light in. Yeah, I agree with that, especially around the lower medallion, right? The reds that surrounded on top and bottom, particularly in number four, they're more vibrant, right? Mm -hmm. You can see through them a little more easily. Uh, great. Okay. The color match is different. Say more. Say. Okay, so those little, those little t um, almost pyramids at the very, very bottom. Is it? Okay. Also, yeah, so the periphery, you can notice lots of differences. Within the pictures, there is um, something I haven't heard yet, which is I'm not surprised I didn't hear. It took me several weeks of looking at these to figure this out. Look at the halos for a moment. What do we notice about the halos from the front six to the back six? So the front six are a different color. The sun makes a little bit of a difference, but the back, so the front six are like a brown gold colors and it's cruciform, right? So that's behind Jesus' head. There's the cross within the halo, cruciform halo. In the back six, the halo is red and green. Very different colors. And without, the, without having known everything from Whipple, before I read all those correspondences, those letters back and forth, I just thought, oh, okay, well, during Holy Week, maybe he has a different color halo. I've never heard of that before, but I don't know. Um, but no, it was these were created first, sent over, installed, and then those were being created elsewhere. I don't know what happened. In the correspondences, it says nothing about the halos. I think it's a minor detail. Maybe that's, hap maybe that's what happened to the halo. I know, yeah. So... Um, the more that you look at these, the point of this activity was, the more that you look at these, 
the more there is to see. That is the beauty of art and the beauty of our windows. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the opportunity once again to uh, witness and to, to uh, look through the eyes of artists and, and gospel writers of the ages to consider how you sent your Son to be with us, to love us, and to show us peace. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to meditate upon your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is great. This is a great spread. Don't, if you're on this side, don't think, oh, am I supposed to be over there? No. We're going to kind of look at all the windows today, so you are in the right place wherever you are. A little bit of orientation once again. If you weren't here last week, that's okay. At the very end of class, I'll have a transcript available. Everything is being recorded if you want to listen to it on the podcast after. But a little orientation, right? We all bring something different to the table. Some of us have a different Bible that we like to read, and maybe the wordings make, make these stories uh, appear differently in our minds, right? So we may not have thought of that little detail. That's okay. Also, some of us, as I just found out today, where, where were you? The McCain's here were married back in the 50s, uh, in 53, before these windows were installed. I don't have the luxury of knowing what, the, what it was like here before. Uh, but it was also so long ago, most folks who were around may not remember what was there before. So we each bring a his history to this that the others may not share. Now, orienting to the room, healing window is north, rose window is south, and then chronologically, we start with this mosaic, mosaic number one. We move all the way around the room, forget about the healing window because that's out of order, and then all the way over to mosaic two. Uh, and 1, 2, 3, 10, 11, 12 installed first, then the next six installed, the healing window installed, and then the mosaics, right? So that's our orientation to the room, to the, the broad chronology, and to each other. So during today's class, we are going to particularly focus on who was the artist that designed our windows. I'm going to step back. I just realized there's a lot of people around me here. We're going to focus on the artist who designed the windows. We're going to zero in on all of these lower medallions throughout the room. And then if we have time, we'll move on to talk about the mosaics. Uh, a little follow-up from last week. Uh, last week, I had quoted the windows, the cost of each Lancet window as $832. Remember, this was back in 1957. What I should have clarified that I did not then is that the price of $832 reflected what Whipple, over in England, the ones who made the windows, right? What Whipple charged to George Payne Company, not what we were charged. Of course, there's a middleman here. There's got to be an upcharge. So the Payne Company, they were the ones who certainly facilitated the transfer. They got them here. They installed them. They were our advocates with Whipple, right? According to our trustee minutes, yes, I pulled those out, uh, from October 15th of 1957, the windows cost us, back in that time, $1,550. 
So that means that that was almost a 100% markup in price. Um, and that you could say that's justifiable or not. I'm not really sure, right? They've 1,550 for each Lancet window back in that era. Um, and then additionally, I don't know, where, where did she go? Julia? There you are. Uh, talking with uh, Dr. Julia Franklin from Malone, um, she pointed out to me a more reliable inflation calculator. And using that and putting all those figures in today's dollars, Whipple charged Payne about $7,300 for each window. And then the Payne company charged us about 13600 again, for each individual window. So these 12 Lancet windows around us Together, if in today's dollars, cost about $163,000. Right. It's a bargain, quite frankly. If we had to do it today, they would cost a lot more than that. Right? So our windows were designed and crafted in Exeter, England, by the J. Whipple Studios uh, between 1958 and 1963. They were then shipped over to America, got to New York as a port of call, and then they were brought by truck to here, to, at that time, First United Presbyterian Church, right? The Whipple artist who designed our windows was a fellow by the name of Arthur Frederick Erridge. And I'll pass out a, uh, I'll, our second week handout in a moment, but Here is a picture of Arthur Erridge, and you'll see this on your handout in a moment. I'm not, I, I guess I could pass it around. So, Arthur Frederick Erridge was born in Kensington, London, on the 29th of July, 1899, to Thomas Erridge and his wife, Ellen Mary Ann. Their, his father, Thomas, died young leaving his widow to, struggling to bring up six boys of her own. So Arthur left school at age 14 and would no doubt have had a very different career had not the local vicar spotted his talent for drawing. And then he found that vicar found Arthur a place at uh, Powell's Stained Glass Studio. So he went to work almost straight away as a teenager and went to study at the Central School of Arts and Crafts, also known as Central St. Martin's School of Art. He was also an accomplished artist in oil, tempera, and watercolor. Now, towards the end of World War I, Arthur briefly served in the Navy before returning to Powell's, where he remained honing his skills until the outbreak of the next World War put a temporary stop to stained glass windows and window making. In the meantime, in his personal life, Arthur married Emily Ann Maud Horn at St. Margaret's Church in Canterbury on December the 6th, 1924. They had two sons and a daughter. And during World War II then, Arthur worked on engineering drawings for the air ministry and served as an air raid protection warden. At the end of the war, he was offered some freelance work at Whipple's, where our windows come from, as a stained glass designer. 
This was the beginning of flourishing in Arthur Erich's life and career because bombing, especially during World War II, had left many churches denuded of stained glass and other furnishings. So there was a great demand for Arthur's skills. And between 1946, just after the war, and his untimely death in 1961, Arthur Erich carried out commissions for windows throughout the world throughout England, Australia, Canada, and yes, the United States. His largest commission that he ever received uh, was uh, from uh, the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. Uh, from what I could find, it said he had 38 windows that he did for that chapel, All Saints Chapel, which we have some pictures of and we'll look at next week. Um, among the two dozen other commissions in the United States, there were churches and chapels from various denominations, including Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, Baptist. Most were in the South, Texas, Virginia, med in the Midwest, like Iowa and Wisconsin, and several also in the East, like in Virginia and New York. <clears throat> now, I have, you know, I will send a few of these around. Um, and I did contact several of these churches and asked for pictures of their windows. Now, some of them were available online. Some of them I had to uh, convince their secretaries to go in with their phones and take pictures of the sanctuary. And believe it or not, that worked. It helps when you say, I'm Pastor Michael. I say, oh, Pastor, okay, yes, Pastor. How, what can I do for you, Pastor? You know. So... Uh, I'm also going to send these pictures around. These come from, these are just a, a selection of the pictures. These don't need to be together. So as you, as you get finished looking at them, pass them on. Those are from All Saints Chapel and University of the South in Sewanee. Um, so we have several pictures from these uh, of windows that Arthur Erich has done elsewhere. The closest to us is St. James Episcopal up in Painesville. Does anyone know this congregation? I'm not familiar. Oh, very good. Okay, thank you, David. So, we have some pictures from there as well. That was, that was one of the churches where I had to, you know, bribe the secretary to take, take pictures. Okay. Um, and then... I want to highlight something. If you have Facebook, you may have seen the article that I posted this last week that Erich is, is well known for, being, for having created one of the world's largest rose windows. This is a, one of the top 10 largest rose windows in the world. And this is located at the First United Methodist Church in Lubbock, Texas. So a rose window... You see this window up here, right? kind of looks like a flower, like a rose. It's round. The largest uh, stained glass rose window that he ever made, I think it's the eighth largest in the world, measures, get ready for it, 26 and a half feet across. So I measured. I took a tape measure this last week, and I said, what does that mean for our sanctuary? So from this side of the arch... To that side of the arch is about 28 and a half feet. So if there were a rose window here, that like, like the one Arthur made down for Lubbock, Texas, it would fill the whole of the arch minus two feet on either side. Right? 
incredibly large, and it's beautiful too. So I'm actually going to, would someone like to help pass out? <laughs> Do you want to get a little, some helpers there? Thank you. So I'm actually sending around a picture of that very window, and this is our handout for today. So while Arthur was on a visit to the States in 1958, he was interviewed by the Shreveport Times newspaper. And there he was uh, quoted as saying that he finds Americans a little too inclined to fill up their windows, to completely fill them up with, with glass, which makes, quote, black boxes of churches, forgetting that the original function of a window is to let in the light. Arthur insisted that, quote, you can let in the light and have color too. And then he said, there's a question whether God was ever found in a dark, closed-up place, right? So, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Arthur Erridge died in 1961, September the 15th. One article said that at Whipple's, the place where he worked for the last uh, decades of his life, Erridge was remembered as a kindly and Christian man. His family occasionally found his generosity and his undemanding approach to business affairs somewhat of an irritant. I don't know what that means. I don't, I wish there were more to that sentence, but there's not. Um, but it was not only his artistry that earned him a fine memorial window in Mark Tay Church near Colchester, illustrating Luke as the patron saint of artists, painting a portrait of the Madonna and child, which I will pass over that around now if you wanted to see that. So following his death, I'll take him to the other side. Following his death, um, there was this memorial window put in at Mark Tay's church there in Colchester. Um, it's, I've reached out to them with no response, but this is a, a grainier picture. But you can see St. Luke sitting with an easel in, uh, in front of him and painting. It's a window of someone painting the virgin and the child. It's beautiful, and, and what a great memorial to a, a fabulous artist, right? And he died in September of 1961. So locating us in the chronology of when these windows were put in, that means that he died before the project was completed. The 12 lancet windows that we've already talked about a lot today, uh, with, along with the three twin windows in the chapel, those were already completely designed, already completely installed. But the healing window... The healing window was not yet completed. Following, remember if we, we talked about last week, before it was its present three lancet design, right? Two skinny ones and a thicker one in the middle. Before it was in its present three partite design, it was four equal parts. So following that, Erridge had designed a four lancet healing window. And then... Ralph Ramsayer said, mm, I don't like it. We need it changed. Um, so, 
we have the beautiful one. We do now. Now, it's a little unclear exactly what was in that four Lancet window. Unfortunately, we do not have uh, the draft or the proposal of the details. It seems as if there were already some of the elements of the healing window, some of these missionaries were maybe in those four. I'm not entirely clear. But um, as I said, Dr. Ramsayer decided he wanted the three Lancet design and the plans were changed. So in a letter from Whipple, so this is over in England, to Fred Weeks in Payne Studios, New Jersey, dated the 9th of September, 1961, a week before Arthur Erige actually passes. It states, thank you for your letter of 30th of August enclosing Mr. Erige's original design of the one-inch scale layout of the proposed window. We note what is required for subject matter and also the treatment to be afforded to it. We will have Mr. Lee tackle this job and let you have the design as soon as possible. So since our correspondences only uh, refer to Canton, we must assume there are hundreds of other letters going back and forth over the pond, right? And it's probably in one of those that Whipple said, you know, the Arthur Erich, uh, this artist is in declining health. So we're going to have to, just so you know, we're going to have to use a new artist for all these pending projects, including this window. So I don't know who Mr. Lee is, but it seems as though uh, he probably finished the healing window. Um, probably majority came from Erich's work, but um, that in redesigning the, th the four to three lancets, Mr. Lee took over and completed the project in the style of Erich. Um, now, when I contacted the Whipple Company, they shared with me that Arthur Erich's granddaughter, Paula Eagle, is extremely interested in her father, grandfather's work. And in the last few years, she even made one trip to the United States to go around to some of these chapels and churches to view her grandfather's work in place. And uh, she and I have spoken a few times, and she seems very interested in making a return trip. So I'm hopeful, if we're lucky, she might even stop by Canton next year to see our windows. We'll see. Yes? I, from everything I could find, uh, there, were, there was no indication of why uh, three lancets over four. If I had to, there was one, there, I remember there being one note, but it, it didn't provide much of a detail. Just said, Maybe he said that he wanted a, one of them bigger or something like that, which, which is what we have. But um, I'm not sure. Good question. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to pause for a few moments to, if there are any questions, because we're going to move on to uh, the next section. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. With Christ at the center, right? You couldn't have that center if it were still the four lancet design. Absolutely. Yes, Jack. <laughs> yes, indeed. Very good eye, Jack. That's very good. If you notice, the back healing window does not have a halo around Jesus, right? And you even get, you even get a halo around baby Jesus. You don't, I don't, it's hard to tell if you get a halo 
in, maybe this is in utero, pre-utero, I don't know, something. The pre-existent Jesus doesn't quite have a halo. But um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that's a really interesting one, that there's no halo there. Okay, a few, few more questions before we move on. Yep. It was a, we don't know. We don't know if there was a, we have some pictures that show it was a four lancet, equal lancet design, but it probably wasn't an image. It was probably just tracery and, you know, maybe a Bible there or a cross there. Um, I believe so. I believe, and that's what we've had trouble figuring out. We're not entirely confident what, what was there before. Yes. Mm. Oh, wow. Look at, why have you had no idea? Uh, Lorraine's saying in a typical, say again. It, a typical Gothic architectural style um, represented inside a Gothic arch would be a three-panel application. So he might have designed it, maybe not even necessarily knowing the architectural style. Of and then oh. it's changed to reflect more of our... Great. Wow. Okay, look at that. See, this is one of the reasons, why, as I said last week, any one of you could probably teach this class, right? Because I'm learning things too. That's great. That's great. Okay, Debbie. Just the other question, but do you actually find artwork like drawing from the windows? The old windows? No, the new windows, when they sent us pictures of There were some, and you will see next week. So this is a plug for next week. Um, there was, before we reached this final design, there was among, it was the only draft copy that we have of any of the windows. Um, I, there were many sent back and forth, but the only one that we still have, and we, I have in my office, and you'll see next week, uh, is that the healing window, uh, before it was this, and there are some major changes. Uh, so I have a big blow-up copy of that. So come next week, we'll be in the balcony the whole time. You can see there uh, all, the, all the changes that happened. Um, to that window. So, great question. That, that's the only um, cartoon we have of any of the windows. And that's the, the technical term for the stained glass windows. Okay, let's move on to um, talking about the lower medallions. So, this is, you should, you've already got this picture here, or this handout, right? So, this is Arthur Erridge. This is that giant rose window down in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, and we'll come back to this in a moment. I want you to flip over and follow with me here. Um, so we're going to really focus on the lower medallions this week. So remember, at the very top, the shield. Middle is the, called the upper medallion, and the bottom is called the lower medallion. Okay. So... In previous correspondences, Payne Studios had requested that Whipple put in the bottom of the window perhaps a small medallion depicting some historical subject pertaining to the Presbyterian Church. And if you were here last week, you remember Whipple completely forgot we were Presbyterian, right? And they try to put, they try to put that uh, coat of arms of Bristol in the window, and that's where Methodism started. And then they sent back some pretty feisty letters saying, uh, guys, come on, really? It's, it's First Presbyterian Church. Did you not read the name of the church before you? Anyways, okay. 
So they send over um, some drafts of these windows, and one of them, another one of them was rejected. And I want to read to you about that because I think this is pretty interesting. This comes from March 3rd of 1958. This is from the George Payne Company to the Whipple Company, where Fred Weeks writes, We submit that the John Calvin panel to this church and the, uh, we submitted this panel to the church with John Calvin in it, and the minister states that he strongly suspects that this subject is the burning of Servetus, which is really sort of a black mark on John Calvin. Now, he personally feels that single feature figures like John Calvin in a pulpit, John Knox before Mary, Queen of Scots, etc., might be more appropriate. So it looks as if you better revise this part of the drawing. A few days later, another letter. I, see, I also see that the pastor says, you may take this matter up with the artist and see if I am right that the submitted panel is the severitous subject. I have no great objection to it other than the fact that I personally feel this is not very eloquent testimony to Calvin's impact on ecclesiastical history. Okay. So I had to look it up, I'll be honest. I must have fallen asleep that day of church history. I don't know. Um, so in Calvin's time, right, heretics who were both called themselves Catholics or Protestants, you know, it was kind of this in-between time, right? Protestant wasn't quite all the thing yet. But um, some people were still um, being killed for being heretics. In 1553, an event occurred in Geneva where Calvin was a major reformer which aroused a great deal of interest and controversy at the time and which has continued to haunt our Reformed tradition. And that event was the execution of a heretic, Michael Severitus. He was a Spaniard and a brilliant man who made contributions to a number of fields. Uh, he probably was the first to actually discover pulmonary circulation of the blood, but that's not really certain because all of his books were banned and all of the copies were burned. Uh, it was not until about a century and a half after he uh, lived that someone found in one of his books that didn't make it to the fire a passage about circulation of the blood and realized its significance. So um, that's a little bit about Michael Severitus, but Calvin, it's very unclear exactly what role he played in the burning of Severitus, um, but there is a story that he already kind of had you know, a warrant out for his arrest, if you will, and then he comes and waltzes into church one day where Calvin's preaching, and, they, and he, Calvin says, arrest the man. I don't know that he lit the fire necessarily, but he certainly had a hand in it. So as uh, the pastor, I think in 58 it would have been Parkinson, Dr. Parkinson, right? Um, he said, yeah, this is a black spot on ecclesiastical history. Do not put that in the windows, please. <laughs> so... It's always, it's, it's nice to know what's here, but I also think it's interesting to know what's not here and why, why it's not here. Okay, so let's go then around the room and talk about uh, these lower medallions. So as I've said, it, it kind of goes chronologically. The lower, the, the upper medallion is chronological throughout the room, going through this, the biblical story. The lower ones, this is where it gets a little trickier, um, but I want to talk through them. So this first one here in Mosaic 1, the bottom, this is the Judean shepherds hearing about Jesus' birth. 
So Luke chapter 2 details about the shepherds hearing from, about the birth, right, uh, from the angels. The angels say to them, do not be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you this day is born this city, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. So, again, we'll return to a bit of quasi-biblical story over here, Mosaic 2. We talked about that last week. We'll get there again. Here, over in number one, this is where uh, this starts, the more historical stories as it relates to the development of America and development of Presbyterianism. So, number one is landing of pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. So, Plymouth Rock is a traditional site of disembarkation for William Bradford and the Mayflower, Mayflower pilgrims who landed there at Plymouth Rock. So this is about 1620. And what we could do, um, we could try to compare why is it this landing of the pilgrims with the birth of Jesus. And I, I happen to believe that there are some connections, and there's a few windows around the room where I've figured those out, but some of them, I'm not quite sure why some things are paired. So this one, I happen to believe it's, you know, beginnings, right? The beginning of the nation, the beginning of Jesus' life, right? So number one, if I had to summarize it, I'd say beginnings, right? Moving on to number two. So this is William Penn making a treaty with the Indians, Native Americans. This is the Treaty of Shackamaxon. Anybody going to correct me on that? Okay, great. Um, so this is Pennsylvania's long, most long-standing historical tradition, and the story says that uh, soon after William Penn arrived in Pennsylvania in late October of 1682, he met with the Lenny Lenap Indians in the riverside town of Shakamaxon. Now it's called Fishtown, and there they exchanged promises of perpetual friendship. However, this event is not recorded in original primary source documents, and so its very occurrence has been debated. This is, if this took place at all, probably 1682, 1683, again, uh, Shackamax in Pennsylvania. And then number three, lower medallion there, this is the Log Cabin College. So look at their, and again, yes, Feel free to move around the room. I see many of you still seated. If you need to get up and walk, you say, I can't see that. Where are my binoculars? I saw a few people bring binoculars. Great. Um, if you need to get up and move closer, by all means do it. There's a few that we're not even going to be able to see unless you go up to the balcony. So if you want to go see those, go do it. So number three here is the Log Cabin College. You have a picture of it on the front side of your handout for today. So this was founded about 1726, and it was the first theological seminary serving Presbyterians in North America. And it was located in what is now Warminster, Warminster, Pennsylvania, founded by William Tennant, and operated there from 1726 until 1727. Uh, or, or, excuse me, from 1726 or 1727 until uh, William Tennant's death in 1746. And now there are many connections between this log cabin college and Princeton Seminary and University, but it's not quite accurate to say that this was an antecedent college that was before Princeton, right? 
So um, if you can take a look at it for a moment, there's an Arthur took some um, artistic liberties. Can we see what, what liberty he's took here? You've got, you've got a pencil drawing right before you um, that he probably didn't really have. He didn't know what this, he probably didn't know what this thing looked like. Do we have any ideas? It may not have had an L, okay. Yeah, a transept and all that, yeah. It looks, it looks very church-like, doesn't it? What did we see on the top? I don't think there was a cross on it. A cross. Yeah, there's a cross on the, the top there in number three that I don't know that actually would have been present. So he took some artistic license. Um, but here, I have to wonder as we consider how did the lower medallions augment the story, the biblical story, I have to wonder if this is the beginning of ministry, right? So as Jesus is being baptized up above, and that is thought to be the beginning of Jesus' ministry, so it is in the, the bottom, in the lower medallion, that that is the beginning of formalized seminary education and ministry preparation in the United States. Okay, moving on. Number four uh, is John Witherspoon signing the Declaration of Independence. So John Witherspoon was a Scottish-American Presbyterian minister. Yes, please move around the room. Yes. <laughs> and John Witherspoon was a founding father of the United States. He was a delegate from New Jersey to the Second Continental Congress and a signatory to the Declaration of Independence. And he was the only active clergyman and the only college president to sign the Declaration. Later, he signed the Articles of Confederation and supported ratification of the Constitution. In 1789, he was convening moderator of the first General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Here, of course, in signing the Declaration of Independence, that is July 4th, 1776, most traditionally, but probably was actually August, right? Um, so there is John Witherspoon. Moving on, uh, number five, which is extremely hard to see unless you are right up on it because the balcony uh, juts up right against it and kind of covers it up. This is the, um, the story of John Knox, who is one of those important reformers, and he is from England. He came into a little bit of conflict with Mary, Queen of Scots, also known as Bloody Mary, right? It's not just a drink you have at brunch on a Sunday, right? It's also the former Queen of Scotland. Um, because when she came to power, she tried to reverse the English Reformation and to revert back to Catholicism. Knox was called before Queen Mary at least five times to account for his sermons in which he would lo uh, lodge criticisms against her, right? Can you imagine uh, being called before the queen and for your sermons? How dare you preach a sermon talking about me and criticizing what I'm doing? Well, um, so he had a lot of um, interactions with her. It's, a, it's the fascinating part of church history. Um, and because we don't exactly know which 
interaction this depicts. This could be anywhere from 1562 to 1563. So as I said, this isn't quite his chronological because that's 1560s. Right before it is 1776, right? And then, only if you're in the balcony can you see number six. Uh, and this is a picture of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Um, this is all that we talked about last year for the 500th anniversary, right? So 500 years ago, uh, in a few months, that's when that happened. Luther, of course, Catholic priest who was calling for internal reforms. He didn't want to start a new denomination, a new religion. He said, no, we just need to fix what's going on inside the church. But instead of responding well to those suggestions, the church shunned Luther, and eventually he started what would become the Lutheran church. The posting of these 95 theses is viewed as a watershed moment uh, that sparked the Protestant Reformation. So that was October 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg, Germany. Let's see how, far, how fast they all can run across the, the balcony here. And then number seven over here. <laughs> So, like Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin was another important reformer who primarily served in Geneva, Switzerland. And in number seven, uh, you can see some fragments of his most important work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. This was a seminal work, uh, the first of its kind, uh, in Protestant systematic theology, and this covered a broad range of theological uh, topics from the doctrine of the church and sacraments to justification of, by faith alone and Christian liberty. So that book was published and republished throughout decades of his life. He reworked it because as he got to studying more, talking to more people, he realized, I could say that better, or maybe I need to include this other thing here. So because of that, it's not entirely possible to date that, Sometime, it, it probably refers to a period somewhere between 1541 and 1560, excuse me, um, 64, 1564 in there. Similarly, the next panel, panel eight, lower medallion, is uh, John Calvin again. If you haven't gotten it by now, he's pretty important for uh, Protestants and the Presbyterians. And that's a picture of, of Calvin preaching in, it says in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm not exactly sure. My best guess would be that that is uh, St. Pierre's Cathedral in uh, Geneva. Then following that, number nine is a, a composite picture. I don't believe either any of these men were all in the same place and stood for this picture, so Arthur could... No, right? That didn't happen. But this, um, and we're not, as we talked about last week, Remember when they thought we were Methodists and they were trying to put the Wesley brothers in one of our windows? There was a, they said, they said to England, if you've already put some work into this, let's just call them by a different name. It's possible that when they were made, the top two could be the Wesley brothers, but we called them John Calvin and John Knox. Um, and on the bottom are uh, Francis McKemmy, who was an Irish clergyman considered to be the founder of Presbyterianism in the United States. And our book, that, that white and blue book, has uh, a few mistakes in it. One of them is this. His um, first name listed there is Alexander. It's actually Francis. I'm not sure why that, that happened. But 
And then number, I'm, I still don't know who's who between bottom left and bottom right, but um, one of them is Francis McKemmy, and one of them is John Witherspoon, who was on the other side of the room, right, signing the Declaration of Independence. So pivotal characters, but this doesn't refer to any one time. This is an undated picture, and these men didn't even live at the same period, right? So um, completely composite. Number 10, um, our own book, getting back to that, uh, on this panel is not correct because it, our book claims that this is John Wycliffe in prison, but as far as I can tell, John Wycliffe was never actually put in prison for his work, at least as I could find, and uh, the notes from Whipple, those 200 pages of correspondence, say that this is William Tyndale. So William Tyndale um, is an English scholar and a leading reformer and who is well known for his translations of the Bible into English. His translation was the first English Bible to draw directly from the Hebrew and the Greek texts, the first English translation to use Jehovah as God's name, preferred by English Protestant reformers, the first English translation to take advantage of printing press, and the first of the new English Bibles of the Reformation. It was taken to be a direct challenge to the hegemony of both the Roman Catholic Church and the laws of England, maintaining the church's position. So again, it's unclear as to when that would have been, probably 1524, 1525 again in England. Moving on to lower medallion here of 11, as more people can take their seats because they can see them from where they are. This is Abraham Lincoln, reading the Emancipation Proclamation. Of course, this was the executive order um, issued by President Lincoln on January the 1st, 1863, which changed the federal legal status of more than 3.5 million enslaved African Americans in the designated areas of the South from slave to free. This is one of the only other uh, whole lancets where I can make sense of why the lower and the upper are together. Can we think about that for a moment? What does the lower medallion support and how does it give some uh, context for the upper medallion? Any thoughts? Freedom of speech. I'd, I, just, I just say stick with freedom. Freedom, new life, liberty, because this is, of course, a picture, uh, the, in the upper medallion, it's a depiction of Jesus' resurrection. What does that mean for us? It means freedom from death, freedom from sin. And I think uh, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation fits well with that for, for our history. Um, there has been a suggestion that this is a, also not, not necessarily the most historical image, um, he doesn't have all the accoutrement you normally associate with Lincoln, right? He doesn't have the big hat. He doesn't have the big beard. So there's a few things that are strange about it. But also, it's inside. And um, I'm not sure if he ever read it publicly like this. Um, it's hard to say. Um, but also, who made our windows? The English. The English are telling America's story. So it, they're bound to get a few of the details wrong, right? Uh, and then here in number 12, this is uh, Francis McKemmy's victorious trial. So if you recall, Francis McKemmy was there over in nine as well. And uh, he was an Irish clergyman, considered to be the founder of Presbyterianism in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
And in 1707, he was arrested. He was arrested um, by Lord Cornbury, the governor of New York, for preaching without a license from the crown as required under the Toleration Act. And McKemmy spent two months in jail before being released on bail. And then at the trial, he produced his preaching license from Barbados? I don't know how that happened. That's, that sounds made up, doesn't it? Whereupon he was acquitted and released, but had incurred heavy legal costs. And this became a landmark case in favor of religious freedom in America. And it's hard to say exactly. This, this um, my understanding is this is a depiction of following the trial while we were victorious. Uh, let's thank God. Let's pray together. So I think this is some of his friends, and I believe he's at the head of the table. Um, probably about 1707, somewhere in New York. So those are all the historical lower medallions. And then over here, a mosaic two on the very bottom, we have the non-historical image, but a beautiful image nonetheless, of Christ leading the church. We talked briefly about this last week, but this depicts on the left a female personification of the church being led by Jesus, as our book says, with a commission to go ye and teach. And this could very well be an allusion to the Great Commission. And I can take it to mean, yes, we have all this history here, but let's never forget what is at the core of all that we do as Christians. Go, go into all the world, right? Making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And who leads us on? Jesus. Jesus leads us on, right? Okay, I'm going to pause there for a few moments. Uh, we've got about a little less than 10 minutes to talk about those, these mosaics, and I want to do that. But I want to ask, take a few questions. Marianne. You mentioned Barbados. That's the only foreign country that George Washington ever visited. So wow. Okay. Look at that. See, again, other, I... I need to sit down. Other people need to teach this class. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning that George Washington, the only other, the, George Washington visited the country of Barbados. So maybe we had closer relations with Barbados at the time. I do not know. Uh, any other questions about the lower medallions or things that, that, that stuck out to you that you want to highlight? So, Jerry? Yeah. So I think it was a back and forth conversation. I think there were some initially in the one of the very first letters it says we want scenes related to the start of Presbyterian Church, but you're going to be hard pressed to find twelve good scenes that could be that people would actually be able to recognize. So they expanded beyond that to include America his, American history, some European history here and there. Um, and there is some back and forth, but um, yeah. Any other questions, Jack? How much participation of this church people was involved in the decision about what medallions to show? Yeah. So it, it's it's it was a back and forth. We're not really sure. Some some of them are very specified, very clearly specified. This is what we want, and some of them. 
um, you know, they'll, they'll send a letter and say, we want the, what do you think about these? Oh, go ahead. Or, hey, we're not Methodists. Don't put, the, don't put those Methodist brothers in our window. I think they're still, I think they're actually still there, but that's okay. Okay. Let's move on because our time is short, and I really do want to focus on these mosaics. As I said last week, for me, these are the most spectacular part of our whole sanctuary. I could stare at these mosaics all day. I love these windows, and I love these, the mosaics just a little bit more, right? Um, so I started hinting at the history last week, but following the installation of all the rest of the windows, imagine that whole wall is blank is bare. People are going to say, come on, what is going on? We've got all this beautiful stuff back here, but if I'm singing here, I can't see anything. It's all behind me, right? So um, people started saying, let's put some stained glass windows there. The problem is, as you may be able to figure out, the other side of those is building. There's a classroom up there that Tikva uses. Right behind there, there's a little closet, right? There's a stairwell. There's some stairs. Over there. There's building behind those. We cannot put stained glass windows there. So what do we do? We put mosaics, which is another form of glass, right? Not stained glass. It's colored glass, and it's a very different style. But um, I want to highlight uh, that all of these windows, and in particular the mosaics, connect us across the world. Even if we don't know the stories, what is beautiful is that we are one in Christ, connected through all the stories of the saints who've gone before. These windows, crafted in England, right? They connect us to England and the whole journey that they made, even if we've never made that journey across the ocean, right? They made the journey. And so it talks about how we're connected to the world. Where has Arthur Erridge been before? Where has he created windows? That connects us all over the world. Now, these mosaics... These mosaics, um, we wanted these, and we called the George Payne Company. Come on in, come on in. We called the George Payne Company and said, help us find some mosaics. Where do we get these? I think I read some of this last week from a letter from, George, or from Peter Rolfe. He's the now owner of the company that bought the Payne Company. Uh, this came just from July of this year. He wrote to me and said that the mosaics were purchased on November the 15th, of 1963 for $5,630. And using the inflation calculator that we used earlier, that would be about $46,000 in today's money, right? They were fabricated in Germany by Meyer of Munich and installed by Venetian Art Mosaics of Yonkers, New York around May of 1964. And Peter, again, says, I would estimate the replacement value today being about $75,000 each. Each. So according to our own books, specifically the 150th anniversary book, the mosaics come from Italy, but the historical archives from Rolf's uh, report that our windows actually come from Munich, specifically the studio of Franz Meyer, and the confusion may have come because the mosaics were later installed by the Italian family-owned company called Venetian Art Mosaics Studio. So I want to give a little bit of background on these because as they're my favorite part, I've studied a lot on these and thought it was really interesting. 
Again, in the spirit of how are we connected to the world and how are all these windows and the hands that touch these connect, how do they connect us to the church around the world and through time? So Franz Meyer of Munich was founded in 1847 and it was called an Institute for Christian Art. It was the studio sought to revitalize medieval building trades with, quote, a combination of fine arts, architecture, sculpture, and painting. A few decades later, 1860, the stained glass department was created. And they became renowned throughout the whole world for their craft. So much so that in 1892, Pope Leo XIII named the company the, quote, Pontifical Institute of Christian Art. 1925, the sculpture department was dropped from the business and mosaics took their place. 1925. So it was only a few decades later that our windows were actually made. <clears throat> from the beginning, restoration and reconstruction of historical stained glass and mosaics were important. Um, this complicated techniques, I'll save that. Um, and today, this company is still family-owned they are in their fifth generation of being family-owned now by Peter, uh, excuse me, by Michael Meyer and his wife Petra. So this company is still alive today, just as Whipple is. Um, the, the Meyer Company of Munich is still around. But the people who installed them, I think this is interesting too. Uh, let's not skip over that. The Venetian Art Studios, um, in 1947, an Italian-born Constante Crovato immigrated to the United States, where he opened the Venetian Art Mosaics in New York City. And being a major port of call, that's where the windows came through and probably where the mosaics came through, too. So Cravato partnered with fellow mosaic artists and who trained with him at the Scuola Mosacisti in Spilimbergo, Italy. Um, the Venetian Art Mosaic Studio completed several large projects between 1950s and 1960s, of which ours was one, including, and here's where it connects us to other places around the world, the mosaic medallions at the uh, Reagan National Airport, interior mosaics at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, whoa, and mosaic murals at Orlando and Phoenix International Airports. So if you've ever been through any of those airports, or you've been to the uh, National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, right, you've seen some of the work, and some of the hands that touch our windows have touched those as well. The company was later to be known as Cravato Mosaics, and uh, he was invited to take over, and eventually moved the company back to Italy in 1979. He was here for a few decades, and then he left. He went back to Italy. He changed the name of the studio, and the workshop grew and grew and has become well-known for its uh, production of first-rate mosaics, both in religious and public settings. Um, the most prestigious locations uh, that are um, home to these mosaics by the same company uh, also include the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, the Basilica of the National Shrine, which I mentioned, and the Basilica of Knock in Ireland, as well as numerous other churches worldwide. More than 40 subway stations in New York and airports, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Orlando, Seattle, and that was the more modern um, uh, incarnation of the company. So 
we look, yes, we look through these windows. We see the beauty and the art. We're drawn to the story of the Gospels, the story of our history all around us. But we should also be reminded that historically, these windows connect us all around the world to Jerusalem, to Italy, to England, to Italy, uh, um, Germany, all over the world. We are connected. The same hands that installed these, that crafted these, connect us. We are indeed one body in Christ, and we are connected. So we have one minute. <laughs> Do we have any questions? Jerry. I have contacted both of the companies um, for the mosaics and haven't gotten a response from either one. So... I don't. I don't. Well, I, I, I would, if I had a guess, I would say it was probably, uh, where was he, Constante Cravato or one of his close f uh, friends in the, in the business because they were um, that, well, no, actually he would have installed it. So no, somewhere in the Meyer studio. Any other questions? How were they transported? You know, they don't come in pieces. I have no idea. I have wondered the same exact thing. But take a look at them today. This is our post-class activity. Um, I, I encourage you to take a look at them. Compare Mosaic 1 to Window 1, Mosaic 2 to Window 12. How do they correspond to each other? They're a pretty good match in regards to the tracery and um, the, the style. But this is, as far as I can tell, this is not Erich's work. Right? So the same artist who conceived of all that's in these windows did not make these. So there are a few differences, but they surely knew what were the knees so that they could copy some elements. Right? Um, particularly, I'll draw your attention over here in window three. See how the Holy Spirit, uh, there's that light that comes off the, of the Holy Spirit onto Jesus. And it's somewhere else as well. I think it is. Here, in the window 12, in the, the ascension, there's that same style of light, but it's not just, it's not just a singular color, right? There's, there's a like wavy pattern. I have to wonder if these lights are meant to mimic those, even if it's not, because they're mosaics. They're, these are painted stained glass. These are mosaics. Um, you can't get the same effect, but I have to wonder if they tried their very best. Okay, okay. The old windows were here, yeah. We are uh, out of time. If you have more questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Next week, if you are able, we, will, we are going to be in the balcony. If you are not able to do the stairs, you can still come, still be a part of the class. You, we'll, we'll have some seats turned around on the floor and you may actually have the best seat in the house because you can look at the whole thing. When we're up in the balcony, we can see the details, but not necessarily the whole. Before we uh, regroup for worship, let us go to the Lord again in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for beauty. We give you thanks for art. We give you thanks that through these windows, we are connected to saints all around the world and throughout time. We thank you for this crash course in history and the ways that you have brought us here, the ways that your Holy Spirit has 
has called us and formed us. We give you thanks, God, for the reminder that through it all, we are being led on by your son Jesus to go and teach and preach. So we do in your name, and we go forth from here to worship, and we go out from there with a great commission on our hearts. We do this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.